Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. We're in the middle of our series on genetics. It was a fascinating episode last week where you discussed prevention and you recommended highly that people get screened in order to prevent potential tragedy. I'd like to speak this week, or I'd like to ask you to speak about, you know, if there is a tragic finding that is incompatibility with the genetics, families with known issues, can they be helped? If they can, is it easy? What could be done? Thank right. you. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me back. Yes, last week we indeed spoke about prevention and screening. What happens when a couple is married already and they turn out to have a genetic disease? They're not going to consider, let's say, getting separated and divorced, is there something much less radical than that you can do than that? Or occasionally, a couple have met, they're not yet married, and they discover that they have a genetic problem, and they'd like to marry anyway. But they don't want the tragedy of children, God forbid, dying of you know genetic diseases. Today, the field of genetics, or as they call it, genomics, hardly a day goes by when a new genetic discovery is not being made. So yes, this is governing our lives, and indeed, there's much that can be done. So let me tell you a little bit about what happens when there is a known genetic problem in a family. Let me start by painting you a picture of the tragic way these used to be handled until modern genetics came along. When I was a medical student, and Rabbi Razna, I won't tell you how long ago that was, but not that long ago. um, Five years? uh, Well, (laughs) a couple of years ago. The way this was handled was, let's say you had a woman who was pregnant with a possibly abnormal fetus, not only due to genetic problems in the marriage, it could be a chromosomal problem like a a Down syndrome baby or some other issues, any type of problem in a pregnancy. Of course, what was done then was an attempt to screen pregnancies and for abnormal pregnancies to terminate the pregnancies. Now, as you well know, in Judaism, we are hesitant to terminate pregnancies. We need very, very good reason to do that without going into the technical halachic decision of when an abortion is permitted, when it's not. But it's certainly problematic in Judaism, and it's traumatic. Traumatic for a woman to have to go through that. There's the, there's a risk of the pregnancy and the termination. There's a guilt and the trauma and the mourning that a woman goes through. So how are things done? Well, you would do certain types of scans. And let's say you picked up on ultrasound screening some sort of abnormality, or there was a high risk that the woman might indeed have some pregnancy that's abnormal. Then often you proceeded to an invasive test. Invasive test was putting a needle into the uterus, that's known as amniocentesis, or taking a little snippet of the placenta, also an invasive test. Those gave you close to 100% diagnostic information. You can check the genes of the baby very well. The problem is they're invasive tests, you're putting a needle into the uterus. About half a percent to 1% of pregnancies are lost that way, which means she may be have a perfectly normal pregnancy, and the pregnancy ends because you needle the uterus. Some of those children are born without fingers and toes because the invasive test can set up bands in the uterus, which can cause those problems. Safe, generally, but not entirely innocuous. And not only that, if you found an abnormality, then you were talking about an abortion, traumatic and and, and tragic. Not only that, even more cruel was a situation where there are diseases which are known as X-linked diseases. These diseases are carried by the women 
and manifest by the sons. For example, hemophilia. So hemophilia, again, we're not talking about a disease that will kill a child at a young age, but it still can be a very serious disease, particularly going back 30, 40 years when treatment wasn't as advanced as it is now. Now, hemophilia usually carried by the girls, but not experienced by the girls, but, but experienced by the boys. Unfortunately and tragically, many women were having abortions just because the child was diagnosed as male, which means you're talking about only a 50% chance right, of the child having it. And can you imagine the trauma and the guilt of living through knowing you, you had an abortion with a child just because they were male? I mean, that was even more, even more cruel, even more tragic. That's the kind of thing we were experiencing. Today, we've moved beyond that. Of course, we can still do that today. But today we have far more sophisticated tests that we can do. I should just mention as an aside, this is really not our PGD discussion, but just as an aside, we are on the verge today of being able to test mother's blood and diagnose the fetus genetically. What happens is enough of the baby's DNA escapes into the maternal circulation, they call it cell-free circulating DNA. And today you can take a blood test from a woman and our tests are so sensitive, we can pick up the one in a million cells that are circulating, or one in a hundred million cells, which belong to the fetus. And we can tell our mother with absolute certainty today whether she has a boy or a girl and its genetic status from a blood test on the mother. No danger to the fetus at all. And not quite routine yet, but we are moving in that direction. As a complete aside, I just mentioned to our audience, we are on the verge of being able to do cancer screening on people without biopsies or scans, just taking blood tests. Because if a woman, let's say, has had a breast cancer, and now she's recovered. And years down the line, you want to know whether she's having a recurrence. So it's body scanning, and it's today you take a blood test. Because if that cancer is regrowing anywhere in the body, enough cancer cells are seeded around the bloodstream that we can pick them up. Unbelievable. Again, not quite routine yet, but that's where, we, that's where we're heading. So this is a brave new world of technology. Now, what can we do that's not invasive if a woman is carrying a pregnancy like that? Well, one thing we can do, as I mentioned, we can do these blood tests. We, we are heading in that direction. But much better than that, we can actually prevent those pregnancies in the first place. Now, how would we do that? Last week, we spoke about preventing the marriages. Well, if you don't get married, out, you know, meet the person who's going to have children. But what if you're married already and you have a problem and you'd like to prevent it at that stage? And here we come to a fascinating and amazing new technique, which is known as PGD or PIGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Israel has a fantastic program. Hadassah Hospital has a program. Sharet Tzedek has a marvelous program. London has a couple of programs. I actually know the lady professor who runs the program in Sharet Tzedek. Her name's Professor Giona Altarescu. She's a wonderful Romanian lady professor. I've sent a number of patients there, and I've actually been to see her department and meet her because I send people. So I went to explore the hospital, and I actually went there with my daughter who's doing genetics at Oxford to actually see the, the unit. See, it's in the genes. <laughs> That's right. So, fortunately, my daughter's got my wife's uh, intelligence but, um, <laughs> and, and looks, fortunately. Be that as it may. So the PGD works as follows. Let's say you have a couple and tragically they've had a child with a genetic problem. Now they're alerted to the fact that they carry the same gene. Can we prevent that happening in a subsequent pregnancy? Here's what we do. The couple decide to use permanent contraception. When they're ready to have a child, they will take an egg from the mother. Actually, they use a few eggs at a time. The father will fertilize those eggs in, a, in an IVF situation. And the early embryo will be tested. When I say early embryo, I'm talking about four cells or eight cells or 16 cells. You're talking about 24 hours after conception. It's no way a baby. It's a little bunch of 16 or 32 cells. And what they do is in the lab, under a microscope, they pluck off one of those cells and check it genetically. If it turns out to be abnormal, they simply discard the embryo. 
There is no halachic problem with that. There's no halachic problem whatsoever. The Catholics have a problem. In Judaism, there's no problem. And as you know, Rabbi Amana, we've got enough halachic prohibitions without having to make up new ones. And so there's no prohibition at all. The embryo is simply discarded. If, however, the embryo turns out to be normal, we implant it in the woman's uterus and she carries a guaranteed normal baby. Right? Absolutely amazing. So in summary, what we do is we use IVF. Some rabbis prefer that the testing is done at the four-cell stage. But why? Because it's sub-microscopic. At that time, you need a microscope to see it. At the eight or 16-cell stage, it looks like a little pinhead in the dish, and you can actually see it. But today, most rabbis are not fussy about that. How long does it take to go from four to eight to... 24 to 48 hours. <laughs> so you're talking about fertilization in the lab. You come back the next day. You've got a little embryo. And under the microscope, you can actually see it. And you can almost see a woman's egg. It's basically the biggest cell in the body. You need a microscope, but it's a very big cell. And so that is what's done. I just mentioned for the fascination of it, uh, listeners might be interested to know, if you take a four-cell human embryo and under the microscope you pull off one cell and check it, the remaining three become a whole baby, not three-quarters of a baby. And geneticists don't know how that works. In other words, here's the mystery. Right, this is worth thinking about. If you have a fertilized egg, okay, husband, sperm, fertilizes the wife's egg, after a few hours, it becomes two cells, which are identical. Same set of DNA. Then they become four identical cells. And we know that because if you pull off one of them, it becomes a whole baby. And the remaining three become a whole baby, not a quarter of and three quarters of a child. Then they become eight cells, 16, 32, 64, and they're all the same. Of course, they're the same. Each cell has simply divided up its genetic material into two. So you're talking about 64 cells or 128 cells, which are all the same. And we know they're the same, because if you take any of them, it will become a whole baby. So each of those cells has all the genes of a whole human being. And suddenly, some of them start becoming head, and some start becoming feet. How? How do they start speaking to each other? And eventually, some do toenails, and some do eyelashes. And fortunately, your toenails never do eyelashes. And fortunately, your eyelashes never do toenails. Now, how does each cell, which has exactly the same genetic information, the whole genetic information for a whole child, suddenly start talking to each other and start agreeing, I'll do fingernails, you do eyelashes, you do heart cells, you do... Nobody knows, right? Perhaps there's a god. <laughs> well, well, there's a very clever genetic program here. Isn't that really the bigger question on anything? How is this table in front of us? No, not to be a, a bottle. Yes, but in the biological field, it's a different order of magnitude, this problem. And this is known as the problem of differentiation. How do the cells start knowing? And it's also very important to know that when the body's fully developed, every cell has all the genes. The genes in your toes have all the genes for your whole body, not just for toes. And that's not intuitively natural. If I were an engineer designing the human body, I'd send the genes for eyes to the, ge to the eyes, and I'd send the genes for the toes to the toes. That's not the way God does it. God sends the genes of the whole body to the eyes, but the eyes know only to do eyes. And when he sells the genes of the whole body, sends them to the toes, they know to switch off all the rest and just do toes, right? Of course, according to Kabbalah, this makes perfect sense. Because according to Kabbalah, the whole is always in every part. Because mm. that's a manifestation of Hashem's Is there a mind. medical advantage to being in that way? Well, there's certainly medical consequences. For example, you could take any cell in the body, and if you know how, you could switch it on and get it to grow anything. <laughs> so you could clone a human being, for example, from any cell. You can scrape a few cells off the inside of your mouth, of the lining of your cheek, and you could grow a whole baby from that if you know how to do it. And of course, we're well on the way to doing that. Right. Yes, Otherwise, so we'd need the entire body. That's theory. right. So now you can regenerate. But you know, you can do that with a tree. If you take a twig of a tree and plant it in the ground, it will grow a whole tree, not only from a seed. There are not many just trees. A big twig. 
No, you can plant one twig of a tree. You don't even need a seed and the whole tree will grow sometimes. Anyway, that's a side point. So that is, in summary, PGD. So let me summarize again. We have a couple with a known genetic problem. We don't want to see that again in a subsequent child. We use contraception. When they're ready to have a child, they stimulate the woman's ovary to produce more than one egg. Of course, you don't want to take a chance with just one. And that's a little painful and a little uncomfortable, but it's very mild. You then take out, using a fine fine needle, you're taking out the ripe eggs from the ovary. You hope to get seven or eight or ten or twelve. Then the husband produces a sample, you fertilize them in the lab. Then of all the little embryos produced, you check them genetically. And you choose a normal one, the abnormals you discard. And you are implanting one of those normal embryos into the woman's womb, and she carries a normal pregnancy. In Israel today, and most countries around the world, they only use one, because twin pregnancies are a bit more complicated, a bit more risky. In fertility programs, many countries allow two to be used to try to get a higher rate of pregnancy take. Of course, it used to be cowboy country where they used to do six or eight, <laughs> hoping to get one pregnancy, and of course, some women had six babies or, or eight babies, and that raised a terrible problem of witnessing some of them die, and in fact, that raised the question of halakhically, may you intervene in a pregnancy where there are four or six or eight children and destroy two or three of the embryos to give the remaining ones a chance to survive, and in fact, you may. I wrote about that in my book on medical ethics. But that's what you do. So in the Israeli program and many others, you simply select one embryo and you put it into the womb. And she carries a guaranteed pregnancy. Is this commonly used, this, this procedure? Oh, ab oh, absolutely. It's used all the time. And I'll tell you a number of stories of people that I've actually worked with. But before I tell you about that, what do they do with the other embryos? So you, let's say you've got, um, let's say, for example, you, you get eight, eight successful embryos. Three turn out to be diseased. You discard them. You're now left with five embryos, which are healthy. One of them you use. The other four are either discarded or frozen for future use. And today there's a super efficient way of freezing embryos that doesn't damage them, or a much lower damage rate than there used to be. It's a super fast freezing so that you don't get ice crystals forming in the embryo. And uh, they're so-called cryopreserved embryos, and they can be thawed for future use. It costs a few dollars a month to have them kept frozen, or they're donated. Now, when a woman, when a couple donates an embryo to someone else, now you get a whole field of halachic inquiry. Here's Mr. and Mrs. A who've conceived an embryo and they donated it to Mr. and Mrs. B. Well, who becomes the mother? When Mrs. B gives birth to a child from her body that her body nourished and nurtured and gave birth to, but the genetic material came from Mr. and Mrs. A, so whose is the mother? And this is a vexed halachic question, similar to sperm donation and egg donation, surrogacy, a different version of that. And today, what we are practically ruling throughout the world today is that although most rabbis feel that the real mother or the real parents are the genetic ones, there's enough doubt about this that we actually cover both bases. So both mothers are potentially the mother. And of course, that means that we wouldn't want children to marry siblings from either family. The way that's done practically in Israel today, for example, is the law in Israel mandates actually registering both mothers as the mother. So such children from sperm donation, egg donation, or egg surrogacy, Such children grow up with two legal mothers. And of course, there's a very good reason for that. The reason is that under secular Israeli law, like in many Western countries, it's illegal to marry a sibling, for very good reason. And of course, halakhically, absolutely. And so, since we don't know who your siblings are, there may be siblings from either of the mothers. If you have two legal mothers, they're all your siblings, and you may not marry any of them, which is wonderful. That's exactly how we like it to be halakhically. Of course, if one of the mothers is not Jewish, that's another whole issue. 
let's say it's a donor mother gives an egg to a non-Jewish mother to carry the pregnancy or a whole embryo and the donor mother or couple are Jewish and the surrogate mother is non-Jewish. So what's done today is throughout the world, the child is put through what we call a doubtful conversion. The London Betin actually does not give a full certificate of conversion. They simply give a certificate of what we did. 20 years later, when the child grows up, you can decide at that point. One fascinating problem, I'm sure you're interested to hear, if the child's a boy, then eight days later you have a problem. Because here's a boy conceived by a Jewish woman, but carried in pregnancy by a non-Jewish woman. And the question is, is the child Jewish or not? Well, when the Brit Milah, the bris is done eight days later, the question is that does the moil do a bris, l'shem bris, if this mm. is a circumcision, or is it a bris, l'shem gerus, which means conversion? That the difference is you make a different blessing. And the problem is, here's all guests standing around, a circumcision about to take place. As soon as the moil opens his mouth and makes a blessing on conversion, everybody will know this was not a normal pregnancy and it may be a little embarrassing and the parents might not want it to be known. Is that why everyone stands around the center <laughs> with their ears open? <laughs> no, that's not people usually don't know. But what should the moil do? Believe it or not, some of the moil in London have been told to mumble. Mumble the blessing. <laughs> so that people don't. Anyway, these are the kinds of problems we're dealing with today. But that's the question of donation, egg donation, surrogacy, and that's a whole field in its own right. Just out of interest, I'll tell you, I know a surgeon, a fertility surgeon, lives in St. Louis, Missouri. So he retired today, but a very famous personality, happens to be Jewish, actually has a son who became a Bolshev, who is a rabbi in Jerusalem. He is a famous fertility surgeon, and he had five sets of identical twin girls, patients, in other words, five pairs of identical twins, one of whom cannot have children and one can. So imagine you've got these two girls who are identical twins. One has eggs in her ovaries and one doesn't. So-called premature ovarian failure. So what's he done? He took a slice of ovary from the fertile twin containing eggs and transplanted it into the ovary of her twin. Since they're identical twins, you can transplant with ease. There are no rejection problems. You don't need any drugs. And all five now have children. Wow. Now tell me, who's the mother? The kids look exactly like the mother and their aunt. They got the genes, exactly the same genes as the mother and their aunt. They were born from their mother's egg and their aunt's body. Fascinating. And these are the kinds of things that... Imagine how lucky the children's spouses are that they have five mothers-in-law. <laughs> no, 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 no. These were five unrelated. In other words, there's five sets of twins, five different families, completely unrelated. Okay, yeah. But in each set, he happened to collect a series of five doubles. Let's go back to our main discussion. Let's not talk now about the other embryos let's talk about the one that's used so now you've had this embryo it's been checked genetically and while they're doing it in Sharit Sadiq they check for chromosomal abnormalities as well not only genetic which means Down syndrome and so forth and so on and then they implant that into the uterus Sharit Sadiq last year delivered this thousandth baby wow to families with serious genetic problems and not one child yet born with a genetic disease let me tell you a story to illustrate what I mean I was uh, approached by a young woman a few years ago. She came to see me. She said, look, I have a disastrous gene, dominant. That means whoever marries me, we have 50% chance of my children having this disaster. You know, not, not incompatibility. Whoever marries me. Dori Shorim is useless. They're not going to test her. And I have it mildly. Thank God I'll be okay. But members of my family had it disastrously and just caused havoc in my family. And I have this gene. And there's a 50% chance of my children having it. Rabbi, who's going to marry me? And I said, I don't know. 
Two weeks later, a young man walks into my office and he says, Rama, I have my eye on that young lady. Do you think you could introduce us? Now, fortunately for me, he already knew there was a problem in the family because family members have been ill. I didn't have to tell him that news. I said to the young man, you know, five years ago, I don't know what I would have said. But now you have an option. If you decide you're prepared to go through this and you date this young lady and she turns out to be the one for you, you can marry and you will use contraception, never have a child normally. When you're ready, I'll send you to Sharit Sadiq in Jerusalem. Cost is 50,000 shekel, which is nothing. It's like 12,000 pounds, which is compared to American prices, that's extremely low. If you're Israeli, it's free. The Kupa pays for it. Probably the only country in the world because of the cultural importance of Jewish families. I'll send you to Israel under Hashkocha. That means in Sharet Sedek, under rabbinic authorization and checking. And you'll come back four days later pregnant with a normal pregnancy. In other words, the preparatory work will be done in your home country. You go to Sharet Sedek with great dignity and halachic sensitivity. They will treat you. You'll come back pregnant with a normal pregnancy. They dated. They married. They just had their third normal child. Wow. Now, you know. so these A godfather are, of thoughts. <laughs> sort of. Yes, indeed. I'll tell you another, another example and I can tell you many stories. Here's another story. A couple came to see me. They have a four-year-old child who's fine, an 18-month-old baby who's got profound congenital deafness. Turns out the parents have a gene for, for deafness, which they discovered with the second child. They said, Rabbi, we don't want another child like this. No problem. I sent them to Sharit Sedek, and they have normal, normal children. No problem at all. Listen to this, Rabbi Rasna. You probably won't believe this. There are two non-Jewish American groups suing for the right to have abnormal babies. They want to use PGD to produce babies who are not normal. Just Why? when I thought I heard everything. Not as bizarre as it may sound. The first group are people with deafness. We want deaf children like us. Who are you to tell us? Is anything wrong with us? We think we're cool. We think we've got highly developed alternative senses, and we want children like us. <laughs> and the American courts are grappling with a moral issue. Is it, is it moral to enable them to use an artificial technique to produce children who have Deafness. How can that possibly be moral? Well, they, these people say we want children like us. It's free of our country. They're free rights and rights of the individual. That's the issue. You're putting your free rights on other people. Well, they say it's not a disadvantage. They say we're fine. Fascinating. Here's a second group. Achondroplastic dwarfs. You know, these are what they call the little people. You've yeah. probably seen them in circuses and they are very short arms and legs. We want children like us. Three reasons. Number one. What's wrong with us? We feel we're fine. We are very happy with our lives. Number two, number two, would you like to be three foot six and have to discipline a five foot ten teenager? <laughs> it's a real concern. Yeah. And thirdly, our homes are designed for little people. We've got door handles and bathrooms and everything designed for little people. It's very difficult for us to host someone in our home who's not like us. And the courts are going through a very difficult time trying to figure out whether this is an ethical <laughs> and moral thing to do. Now, you may well imagine... Much more common than that, of course, is we want a boy. We want a girl. We want a blue-eyed boy. We want a musical girl. We're not quite there yet with the musicality, but we can certainly guarantee you a boy or a girl. So how do we handle that Jewishly? The Knesset, the Israeli parliament, has decided we will not use PGD for gender selection unless you already have four or more of the same gender. So if you want the Kupa in Israel, the, the health insurance, to pay for your PGD in Israel, if you have four or more of the same sex, then you can use PGDs to select a 
a child of another gender. And they'll pay for that? Yes, yes. Really? But if you don't, if you, that's not your situation, they reserve it for life and death issues and they're not prepared to pay for gender selection. Where we do use it, of course, there are some countries, as you can imagine, very wealthy countries, where this is big business. By the way, there's talk of it in China where there was a one-child policy and uh, so that, that, that. But, of course, there are places where this is being used as a... Um, From a Jewish perspective, is there... Because we know the Torah says pro and the ultimate mitzvah is to have both a boy and a girl. Indeed. So we would not use this Jewishly, but I'll tell you where we use it every day. And I'm sure you'll see the logic of this. Take a hospital like Sharetzedek, which is doing this program. So let's say a woman's gone through the program, a couple's gone through it. They turn out to have five healthy embryos. Three male, two female. You have to make a choice. So you say to the parents, look, we've got three male, two female. Which do you want? You have to make a choice. No problem. We're only using one. So that's done all the time. It's bizarre. It's bizarre, but of course it's practical and there's no problem with that. And of course that's what's done. And a couple think about it and they simply choose, you know, they choose, uh, they ask you, is there any difference between them? You say, no, they will look healthy. So they will choose um, appropriately and that, that's been done all the time and there's no problem with that. I'll tell you even more amazing is some hospitals, like in fact, Charitetic Hospital, they have an amazing program where they can diagnose the egg before it's fertilized. I described to you a PGD where you fertilize an embryo and then a day later or two days later, you are testing it. If you know that the problem is in the mother, like for example, the girl I mentioned who has a dominant disease, believe it or not, we can actually test the egg before we even fertilize it. It's not even a question of an embryo. And how they do it is absolutely amazing. And it's difficult on a podcast without a diagram to describe this, but I'll describe it very briefly because I think our listeners will find it interesting. I'm sure everyone listening to our podcast remembers their high school biology absolutely perfectly. And if you think about it, you remember that every cell in your body has a double strand of DNA. You've got two copies of DNA. And of course, what happens in the sex cells is you get an unzipping of the two-stranded DNA, and only one strand makes it into the sex cells, the egg or the sperm cell, and then when they come together in fertilization, you end up again with a double-stranded DNA, and so all the cells of the body are produced that way. But the point remains that in the reproductive cells, like the egg, instead of a double strand of DNA, you have one. Now, let me remind you that if a person has a, a, a genetic disease, for example, let's take, take the example of a dominant disease. Dominant disease means that in the two strands of DNA, only one will be affected. So we, we, we call them little d and big D. The little d will be the normal gene, and the big D will be the dominant disease gene. Now, of course, if they're both dominant, both positive, then probably the mother wouldn't survive. That would be too severe to survive. But if one gene is normal, so she's normal because it's producing whatever the body needs, the abnormal gene is not doing any harm to her, but if the baby gets that one, okay, then... Um, then uh, if the baby gets that one, of course, a woman with, with a small D and a big D will have the disease. She may have it mildly, as we said before. But we are interested in making sure that the baby gets not the big D, but the little D. Well, what happens in, in her egg cells, of course, is that each egg cell gets only one strand. Now, here comes the question. What happens to the genetic strand that is not used in the egg? It sits in a tiny structure called the polar body, which is a little structure that sits on top of the egg. So here's the full picture. You've got a woman's egg. It contains one strand of DNA. On top of the egg sits a little polar body that is not used, as far as we know. It c contains the complementary or other strand. One will be normal, one will be abnormal. And here's what they do. They take the egg under a microscope and they pluck off the polar body and they check it. If it's abnormal, they use the egg. 
Because if the abnormal one is in the polar body, we know the normal one's in the egg. And if the polar body turns out to be normal, we discard the egg. This is what my kids call way cool. <laughs> so that is how they do it. And then you know you, you're dealing with a normal egg and you haven't touched the egg. All you did was infer what the gene of the egg is by looking at what wasn't used and then you use the egg. And there have been many cases. I'll, I'll finish by telling you. I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, a lady arrived in Sharet Sedek. She said, I lost all my hair as a child. I have a genetic problem. It was terribly embarrassing. The kids used to pull my wig off at school. It was hard to get married. I'm married now. I don't want to go with the same problem. They said, lady, we're not testing you. It's not life and death. We reserve PGD for life and death cases. She went to see Rav Noivert, a famous rabbi in Jerusalem. He called up the hospital. He said, listen, I've got a hysterical lady on my hands. This is a serious problem. Do the testing. They did the testing. But every case is judged on an individual basis because they try to reserve the testing. They're not testing routinely for recessive genes. After all, there's nothing wrong with you if you have a recessive gene. They're not testing for disease propensity genes like BRCA because what does BRCA mean when you're 30 or 40 years old? You may have a problem with breast cancer, not going to kill a child. So at the moment, they're trying to reserve it for the immediate life and death issues. One interesting fact I'll mention is that every couple that comes forward to be tested is questioned. What is the problem? Why do you need it? Et cetera, et cetera. There are some population groups that are not tested. And the reason is there are some segments of the population where there have been cases where a woman cannot produce an, a normal child. The husband has killed it. So the, the, wow. the, those people don't get asked any questions. Anyway, these are some of the sociological problems. But in summary, this is a fascinating technique. And so let's wrap it up with this. If we have a couple who are already married, and I've had one or two couples who weren't married yet, but very much wanted to marry, and knowing that PGD is available, may well consider a marriage. Then what you can do these days is, instead of having to invasively investigate a pregnancy with needling and amniocentesis and so on, what we can now do is, before the pregnancy begins, we can screen the embryos in this fashion. As I say, it, it takes time, and it's not totally a walk in the park, but you know it's very, very feasible and very low risk. And we can now effectively virtually guarantee families who have known genetic problems that they can go ahead and have children using this IVF technique and be guaranteed that they will not have children with it. So that's PGD in a nutshell. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Robert Hans. That was fascinating and really a big comfort to know that due to modern technology, we can quite literally sort out such uh, things that were science fiction till now. Thank you very much, Robert Hans. Is next week, there'll be another episode on genetics, I believe. Perhaps we can think about talking about some of the new DNA identification techniques where we can tell who is who and the fascinating new Jewish gene. The Jewish genes. We're looking very forward to hear about that. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Bye.